0: Why don't we pray once again? Father, thank you for the privilege we have to gather every Lord's Day in your presence. Thank you for allowing us to gather as a family, remembering that Jesus rose from the dead, remembering the gospel, to sing praises to you, to have fellowship with one another, to read your word together, to hear your word explained together. Thank you. It is a great privilege. We pray your blessings to our church. We pray your blessings to those who gather together in your name on this day, not only here, but across the world. We pray that your kingdom may come, that your will be done, that your name may be glorified. Forgive us for our many sins, Father, we pray. Have mercy on us. Forgive those who have done anything to us as well. Have mercy on them. Do not take into account whatever has been done to us because we have done much worse things. And Father, deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen. Amen. We are starting our. First Sunday of the year together, and uh, I have a New Year sermon. It's based on Second Corinthians five, one through eleven, and I would like to read the Word of God first, and then go to explain it. The Word of God reads: "For we know, 2 Corinthians five one, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed," We have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in heaven, in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim or our ambition to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience also. May God bless the reading of His Word. We start a new year, and we call it a new year because the earth starts that 584 million miles elliptic cycle, or ellipse, around the sun at the amazing speed of 67,000 miles an hour, rotating at 1,000 miles an hour on its axis. And flying with a whole solar system around the galaxy at 448,000 miles an hour. We are at this youth fair cyclotron. We don't even feel it. But that's where we are. That's where we live. Constant motion around the galaxy and the galaxies motion around another center and the universe is expanding and now they are sending this new telescope a million and a half miles away from Earth in some kind of well in space that keeps the telescope running behind Earth and rotating even at that great distance to even probe further into deep space. And that is amazing. So we celebrate every year that we start that elliptical circle around the sun again. But it's a time, as Tony said, that people make new resolutions. Resolutions that many times are done by the end of the third week in January, but people try again year after year. If I may suggest to you, then try working on some kind of routine that you can keep for 20 or 21 days, and it becomes a habit. That's more profitable. And if you keep doing it for about 10,000 hours, then at the end of about three years and a half, you will actually be an authority on whatever it is that you are working on. So I encourage you to do that instead of trying again the new resolutions that are, that are done um, by Martin Luther's King Day or one of these coming dates. Today, however, I don't want to talk about resolutions, but I want to talk about the passage we just read. It's a portion in a letter that Paul wrote, and uh, the things we will consider you've heard and seen before. I'm not going to give to you anything new, but I just wanted to use Paul's example as to draw four perspectives we can keep in mind as the new year starts. Now, Let me give you the context, because it would not be honest to delve into the passage without explaining why that passage is there, and what exactly is the context of it. Paul wrote this second letter to the Corinthians. It's actually not the second letter, probably the fourth, but the other two are lost. Uh, But he wrote this letter to kind of, not kind of, but actually to defend his ministry because the Corinthians had become infatuated with some itinerant teachers and travelers, some of them true Christians, others were not. Because Paul calls them children of Satan at a given point, and they were just infatuated because these teachers were undermining and downplaying Paul's ministry and exalting themselves. And the Corinthians, being Greek, they liked the fine and refined speech of these itinerant travelers. They their wisdom. They like their, their cunning, their appearance, their shape, their form. And Paul was just this despicable individual who was not even attractive to listen to or to look at. And Paul has to say, you know what, guys, uh, that's not it. Uh, the gospel is more than that. And he has to write a letter to defend himself, not so much for the sake of defending himself as a person, but ...to defend the gospel and the ministry of which he was made an apostle. So he was, in a sense, defending his teaching alongside with his ministry as the one who had the imprimatur and the credentials of God. Now, it's interesting that the Corinthians despised Paul because of his weakness. His weakness in presence, his weakness in speech, his weakness in appearance, his weakness in everything... And Paul uses the letter to exalt and speak more of his weaknesses than anything else. Because Paul wanted to use those weaknesses and sufferings as the sign of his true credentials as a minister of Christ. Fascinating that in his curriculum to the Corinthians, Paul uses what they despised as weak and as despicable as the signs of being a true servant of Christ. And in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, We have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in, earthen, in earthen, uh vessels, so that the surpassing power may belong to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. That's the mark that we are servants of Christ. That we don't have anything to show forth. We're just a clay jar that is displaying a brilliant diamond. The diamond is the gospel, not ourselves. And then Paul goes on to describe his afflictions and his weaknesses. In that context, we come into chapter five. And from chapter five, I want to draw from four principles using Paul's example that we can have before our eyes. As the new year begins, not as resolutions, but as principles to set forth before us to live by them. The first one is this, we know what the future holds. People say Happy New Year, blessings to you, and and this is going to be a hard month for me writing emails because every time I write an email, I start an email in January. Happy New Year, all the best to you. By the way, where's the machine? Where's the problem? Whatever. But you have to start with that first liner. It's okay. It's polite. We have to do it. We don't need to be obnoxious or social misfits. That's the convention. We wish people the best. We hope for the best. But guess what? By April. It's going to be the same stuff. It's going to be another April. It is life. Now, we, Christians, we do know what the future holds. And that's Paul's point in verse 1. He says, Though our earthly dwelling decays, we have an eternal abode awaiting for us. We have an eternal dwelling in the heavens. See, one of the most challenging things for us human beings is what? Uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty. Uncertainty causes anxiety, fear, depression, wandering, sleeplessness. We don't like uncertainty. We like things to be under control. I I am such a crazy person that at the end of the year, I I have a pivot chart. I have my Excel thing, cash flow, and I just do a refresh on my pivot chart, and I know exactly what I spend even in stupid things, because I have a category for them. I need to know where everything went. And I even run my cash flow to hopefully know that at the end of December of this year, I'll have so much money in the bank. And guess what God does every week to my cash flow? He messes it up. No, you don't know. Here's the air conditioning breaking, or here's this problem happening, or here's this person having a need, or whatever it is. And he just likes to shuffle my domino game, my cards game, so that I remember, no, you don't know. You don't know a thing. You don't have control over a thing. You don't even know what's your next breath. Now, at the same time, we know what the future holds. I love the comparison Paul makes even though our earthly tent is decaying, we have an edifice, a building from God. It's fascinating to travel through the old continent and see those old buildings, those old Roman constructions. Sometimes you see them in books, but when you see them person, in person, it is unbelievable to see these huge columns, these huge pillars, these huge buildings made of solid rock cut from a quarry nearby. And you're just standing in awe at how these guys, without not having zero, without having, not having negative numbers, not having differential calculus, not having any of that stuff, could build the way they build Massive construction. And Paul was a tent maker. And the tent Paul made are not those fancy tents you guys carry to the ham- to the Sebring Hammocks Park when you go on your yearly uh, uh, camping traveling or camping trip. No, no, no. These were just portable little sleeping bags that travelers would use to spend the night. And Paul says, even though this body, this little sleeping bag that you carry to travel is decaying and is deteriorating, guess what? Put that sleeping bag by one of these huge Corinthian buildings. God has one of those for us. In the heavens. That's a comparison he's making. It is something that we cannot even describe. It is a massive contrast between what we have in our bodies versus what God has in store for us. Because the state or the glory of the resurrected state is simply indescribable. We cannot even fathom it. It is incomparable to the current state we are in. Let me make a side note. Beware of those books of people who died and come back to tell you what they saw. And that they saw Jesus and they saw the light. Or the book about the famous kid who went to heaven and became a best-selling movie and everybody loved it. You know what I'm saying? Beware of it. Because Lazarus was resurrected, and to my knowledge, we don't have any recollection of what he saw. Tabitha was resurrected. I have no idea what she saw. Paul, he says, I don't know if I was dead or if I was alive, but I went to heaven. Paul, what did you see? They told me I cannot tell you guys. So, in light of the evidence we have in Scripture versus whatever testimonies are out there, I'm going to stick with scripture. You decide what you want to believe. But I take the, Paul says, I cannot tell you what I saw. Those things are not permitted man to speak. So if somebody saw whatever they saw, fine. I'm not going to challenge you, but I'm just going to tell you. uh, In the Bible, there's not a lot of information about it. Now, the information in the Bible is that it is indescribable. It is the uninterrupted presence and enjoyment of God. And I have no idea what that is. We have pleasures in in our bodies. We have pleasures through our senses that we can partake and enjoy. Well, that's a glimpse. That's a little sampler. That's a teaser of what's coming. But but I cannot describe. It is something that David poetically wrote it as this in Psalm 84.10. A single day in your court is better than a thousand anywhere else. Even to the point that he said, I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of God. I'd rather be the guy who just opens the door for people who are coming in than to dwell in in palaces of wickedness. Now, that's poetic language, just to say, whatever it is, the worst of the worst in heaven, it's incomparable to the best of the best on earth. It is the uninterrupted sense of being loved and accepted by Christ. In the car this morning I was talking to my wife and telling her, I appreciate that you are not a person who relies on what used to be your shiny external beauty when you were young. When my wife was young, she looked like a doll. People told me that. She looks like a little doll. She was amazing. She's now 58, so she's beautiful to me, but she's a 58 year old woman. Now... There are women her age that are all the time with Botox and surgery and doing things because they cling to that going beauty. And she says, you know what? I don't care. I'm 58. What I care is the love of my husband and of my children. That's where my validation is. She says, wow. You know what? In heaven, being validated by the uninterrupted love of God and the presence of Christ. The uninterrupted view of our Savior. Don't ask me how it works. I have no idea. I'm still trying to get my hands around relativity and space-time and all of those things and I don't even get my mind around it, much less about eternity. But it's going to be the uninterrupted view of Christ in the completely uninterrupted sense of being loved and accepted by Him. That's heaven. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me, says Paul. That uninterrupted sense of knowing and feeling and tasting Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. And I just imagine saying Jesus can can I see the hole again? Can I get my finger in one of the holes of your hands or your feet? And just doing it in words this is me crazy speculation but you're not going to stop sensing and viewing that Jesus loved you if you are in him, or the unlimited pleasures of a sinless existence, existence in the unlimited view of Christ. And it is pleasure. Psalm sixteen eleven says, You will show me the way of life, giving me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. That's a New Living Translation. You will give me the pleasures of living with you forever. You see, we are very drawn to sexual temptation because it's a great pleasure that sex brings. Oh children, if somebody tells you that no sex is evil, they're not telling you the truth, sex is very good, that's why people get married and want to have sex. It's, it's awesome. It's evil when you have it outside of the boundaries. God wants you to enjoy it. Now, that is just a teaser. That that is nothing compared to the pleasures of a sinless existence in the presence of God. Eating. Why do we eat? Sometimes we overeat. I told my wife, if I lived in Spain... I would be skinny. Bet your life. Walking 15, 10, 12 miles a day, up and down hills, climbing stairs, you would be skinny. It doesn't matter how much you eat. I ate like a pig, and I lost a pound and a half. Just out of all the walking. Now, why do we eat so much? Because it's pleasurable. When you're eating, your brain releases dopamine. Dopamine. And it gives you a sense of joy. That's why sometimes when you're anxious, you go for that chocolate or for that sugary thing. Because you just want it to release. You just want some soothing in your soul. That's just a tiny portion of pleasures forevermore. And you know, that's how you fight sin, by the way. You don't fight sin by holding your breath. Don't sin because it's evil. <gasps> Guess what? You're going to breathe. You're going to breathe. And then when you breathe, you're going to (laughs) explode. Tip for parents of younger children. Stop your law. It doesn't work. The law only brings about wrath. I've seen it. I've done it. God had mercy on my children. Saved them at a young age. But the law only brings wrath. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And the minute they go to high school or to, to college, they explode. They are free. Then we wonder why children and young people are leaving church by droves. Because all we're doing is restricting, restricting, restricting. And then the world explodes. I was in Toledo. Christians were not supposed to take baths. Because that forces lasciviousness. You wonder why Europeans hate Christianity so much. The idea they have of the gospel is you don't take baths. Because if you take baths, you're just promoting lasciviousness. And that's what the church did for centuries. And the Reformation didn't fix it. We just want to go back to add more law, 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 and law. And the law is only good for one thing. To tell you, you can't make it. You need a Savior. Go to the cross. Now, just went on a side note. To be with Christ, Philippians 1, Paul says, it is much, much, much better. He uses a a superlative, but he, he uses a grammar exaggeration. It's not even the right usage of a superlative, but he wanted to say, I'd rather depart and be with Christ because that is the, the bestest best. Kind of what he's saying. Or what he said in verses 6 and 7 in this text. I'd rather be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. That's why some of us believe in what theologians call the intermediate state. That we die, the body is committed to the ground in hopes for the resurrection, but we go to be in the presence of the Lord. How exactly that works, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say a lot. But but I don't believe in the sleep of the soul. Why? Because Paul says, I'd rather die right now and be present with Christ right now. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But then the certainty of that hope doesn't remove the reality of present pains. Verses 2 through 6. Because Paul says in this tent we groan as we hope for the resurrection as we hope to be covered by our celestial dwelling. Same idea he presented in 1 Corinthians 15 on his first letter to the Corinthians. We groan burdened alongside creation. Romans 8 describes that creation is in bondage on account of sin. When the first Adam was given the opportunity to follow God or choose evil, he handed in the authority that God had vested him to the devil. And with it, creation fell. And the first Adam blew it. And brought creation, instead of building it as he was called to, he brought creation to a state of curse and decay. Now consider the wonders of creation nowadays. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, if you've been to the Niagara Falls, if you've seen the the Alps. Whatever it is you've seen, if you've seen Miami Beach, the ocean, because we take it for granted. Oh, I hate Miami. I wish you would see people over in other places when you tell them, I come from Miami. <gasps> what? Miami. That's heaven, right? Oh, I want to move to the mountains of North Carolina. See you there. Have fun. I'm, st- I'm going to stay here with the beaches and sunlight of Miami. We have wonders. We're surrounded. The Everglades. We're surrounded by the wonders of creation. We're just taken for granted. Now, that's a fallen earth. <laughs> That is a cursed world. Do you know what we're actually seeing? The wreck of a Lamborghini and a Porsche. You go by the road and we see this wreck. Oh, that used to be a Lamborghini, that used to be a Porsche. That's what we see in creation. The glories of the restored creation are simply unimaginable to us. When the regeneration comes, when the recreation comes, when God makes all things new again, when the second Adam returns, and is crowned with glory, and all things are brought subject to his feet, because the first Adam failed, but the second will undo his mess, then it's unbelievable what we will see. What will it be in that regeneration, in that recreation and restoration of all things? Well truth is that that hope doesn't remove that we are groaning. Because today creation groans. And we groan with it. And our groaning, and I hate to say it, I don't even like to preach it, I don't even like to think of it, is by God's design. There's no way out. doesn't matter how handsome guys on TV tell you that you have a wonderful life ahead of you. And that you have a champion that you must discover in you. There ain't any of that. None. You know why? I'll tell you why. Philippians 1.29 It has been granted to you for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in Him. But also to suffer for His sake. Faith is a gift of God. Do you know what else is a gift of God? God. Suffering. Oof. I don't like that. Me neither. It's one of those that you say, but He will help you grow. I don't want to grow, Lord. But He will strengthen your faith. Leave me weak. I'm okay. I don't want to suffer. I'm okay. I'm fine. I just want to go to heaven. Leave me alone. But it has been granted to you because it is necessary that through many tribulations we may, we must enter The kingdom of God. So face it. Our hope doesn't remove our groaning. And I'm not going to be the kind of preacher that will try to sell to you something which is not. There is suffering in believing. There is suffering anywhere. You don't want to believe? Fine. It's not going to get any better. Actually, it's going to be a lot worse. But if you believe, there's going to be suffering in believing. groaning is part and parcel of the Christian life. Now you say, this thing of sinless existence, that doesn't attract me. If it doesn't, I suggest that you go back to the drawing board of what the gospel is. Because the whole theme of the gospel is that God sent a Savior to remove the sin of his people, to remove the sin of the world, as John the Baptist called it. And the hope and expectation of a sinless existence, it's something that to call it a hope and expectation and a joyful thing, you have to have the Spirit of God. If there's no attraction to you in it, maybe you should go back to the drawing board of the gospel and consider, have I really understood the gospel? Thirdly, from Paul's example, we can learn for the new year, being of good courage. He says, We are of good courage, because we live by faith, not by sight. Now, we want to live by sight. Wade read this morning from Matthew, the Pharisees demanding for a sign. Show us. To me, that's fascinating, by the way. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the wonders. They've seen the signs. They see Jesus, and they have the guts to say, Show us a sign. What? What? But you've seen things that nobody has ever seen before. They wanted a sign. But guess what? We too want a sign. Oh God, show me you're real. It's by faith, not by sight. If I don't see the holes in his hands, if I don't see the holes in his feet, if I don't get my head in his chest or in his side, I will not believe. We want signs. I have earnestly prayed for signs. And I have not been given one. But I've also understood that God is honored when we live by faith, not by sight. Thomas, because you saw, you believe, blessed are those who without seeing, believe. There is a blessedness There is a highly honoring statement that we make to God when we say, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. I'm angry because of it. But I love you and I will do what you say. By faith. Not by sight. The righteous shall live by faith. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord... But in your name we cast out demons, in your name we made miracles, in your name we prophesied. And I will tell them, I never knew you, depart from me, you doers of lawlessness. Beware, lots of people are out there saying God told them, God showed them, God said, some people are buying our planes and changing their airplanes for even better ones, because they cannot ride on normal airplanes with those demons. The demons are those of us who travel for business or leisure, by the way. Beware. The righteous shall live by faith. And finally, for the new year, we aim, following Paul's example, at pleasing God. Why do we aim at pleasing God? In anticipation for his judgment. Text says that we will participate or we will appear before the judgment seed of Christ. And this is one of those texts that you say, "Ah, I felt so tempted to to cut it on verse 5 or 6 or 7 and not make it all the way to verse 10. But I would not be honest if I did that. Because when you read the text and you have it before you in your Bibles, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the question we ask is Is that a judgment of works or by works? What do you read? It says, You will be judged by what you have done in the body, whether it is good or evil. In Revelation 20, you have a similar statement, when in allegorical language, if you will, the books are open. The dead were judged according to the works that were written in the book. Only those who were written or inscribed in the book of life passed the test. But it is a judgment. Matthew 25, Jesus says, I will put the goats on one side and the sheep on the other. And I will ask them. Or tell them, come, blessed of my Father. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was naked and you covered me. I was in prison and sick and you visited me. Lord, when did we do it? When you did it to one of those of my brethren. Same question to the goats. Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry or thirsty? You saw a lot of people begging. A lot of people in need. And you just closed your heart. Depart from me. It's a judgment by works. Oh, but that goes against my confession. I I don't give a squat about your confession. That's what the text says. Now, (laughs) we have to interpret the text. And I use the illustration of the three circles. I was talking to my son-in-law about it this weekend. We use three circles to interpret the text to hopefully land safely. The first circle is the circle of the gospel. We cannot remove the text from the reality of a gospel that teaches that salvation is a gift of God alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We cannot remove that. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And Paul, the writer of this text, is the one who pristinely and masterfully articulates that in the book of Romans and in Galatians. So, I have to say, okay, Paul is saying what he's saying, but then he he, he really articulated and distilled the gospel masterfully the gospel of grace, so he's either crazy, neurotic, schizophrenic, or I have to do some more homework with this text. And then you take another circle by which you encircle or you close the text. And it is those parables of the kingdom that show salvation is by grace. There's a wedding invitation. And, and the first ones invited, the Jews didn't take it. And then God says to his servants, just go out to the roads, go to every place you find and bring them in. Force them to come in. And then a guy is found at the wedding, he didn't have the dressing or the proper clothing for the wedding. And he is cast out. You know why? Because in those days, with the invitation, instead of you having to give a gift, you were sent the dressing code. You were sent the clothing to come to the wedding. The guy who was at the wedding the clothing was not clothed and dressed by the one who invited him. Grace. It's grace all over. Jesus stated it clearly. So okay, then what do I do with first Second Corinthians five one and ten, which is the inner circle of my text? Well it is the reality of Ephesians two eight through ten. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not of you, it's not of works, so that anyone should boast. Because we have been created for good works that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. If you are saved by grace, you will be doing good works that God has prepared for you to walk in them. And then Paul says, and we will be judged by those works. Of whatever we did in the body, whether it is good or evil, because of that, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. What's your ambition? We all have ambitions. I want to see my grandchildren. I want to pay my mortgage. I want to pay my car. I want to get rid of my debts. I want to do this. I want to be a millionaire. I want to... Whatever is your ambition? Paul says, I have one. To be pleasing to the Lord 24-7. I don't care how I die, but I want to die in those two tracks of my train path of doing the will of God. Paul says, that's my ambition. Which brings them to living in integrity. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. But what we are known to God, he tells the Corinthians, I hope it is known also to your consciences. In other words, you are who you are when nobody's watching. I'm too old, going to be 59 very soon, to believe that you are what I see here. I hope you're getting old enough to know that I am not what you see here. Now, there's a person here who really knows what I am, and she's sitting right there. You can check with her. But even her doesn't get the whole picture of what I am inside. Do you know what Paul says? I walk before God. He is my fear. And whatever I am, I hope you can also see it. But if you don't, I walk before God. And that's the name of the game. And that's his ambition, to be pleasing to him who sees all the time. And then he makes a good point. And you know what? I live to persuade others. Persuade them of what? Persuade them of the gospel. He had an evangelistic aim in life. And I encourage you and me to live with that evangelistic purpose. Now, to live with an evangelistic purpose is not to be the obnoxious, social misfit Crazy, who is taking the wedding or the dinner, whatever, family night, to make statements and to be this social misfit, correcting everything and everyone and condemning everything and everyone, and nobody can endure you. That's not the point. The point is, I will live to shine the light of Christ in whatever shape or capacity God gives to me. Make the 2022 and the rest of your life. To aim at living a Christ-exalting, Christ-centered, gospel-speaking, living, modeling life. And I want to end with a story of these friends of ours who are now in Spain, in whose department we stayed while we were on vacation. He is in his mid-60s. She is my age. So she's going to be 59 pretty soon. And they decided at the end of their lives, to move to Spain because they were or they are having a ministry that is related to family and counseling and it's gospel preaching but it's very oriented to helping couples and helping families they don't have an apartment, they don't own a house they don't have money, they don't have they have minimum savings, the ones that, that the government in Spain requires you to live there and they decided to move away and call this the Caleb Project, remember Caleb? When he was 80, he told Joshua, I'm as strong now as when I was 40. Let me take that mountain, and I'll take it for the Lord. And Joshua says, go ahead, and he took it. So, he says, I'm in the last part of my life, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to die, but I just wanted to die running at full speed. And they moved to Spain to work in ministry with the churches in that country, which is not as strong, Dry as many Reformed Baptists make you believe it is, or others. No, they don't have a lot of Reformed Baptist churches, but they have a lot of churches. Because the kingdom of God grows everywhere like the mustard seed, even though it is not exactly with our standard of the kingdom of God. And there they are, serving the Lord, ministering, spending the last they have, taking the last leap in their race to serve the kingdom. Beloved, we have no idea how many new years we have left. We have no year, no idea if we will see the next Christmas. But whatever we have left, make it your ambition to be found dead-centered, doing God's will, living for His glory, knowing what the future holds, knowing that that certainty does not remove your pains and your groans. Being of good courage, and making it your ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Amen. Father, bless your word. And help us. Help us, Father, to have one thing in mind. To forget what lies behind. and stretch to what lies ahead. To the prize of our supreme calling in Christ Jesus. For whose sake we forsake our own righteousness, our own lives. To follow him. To know him the power of His sufferings, the power of His resurrection, so that we are clothed, not in our own righteousness, but in that righteousness, which is Christ's, by faith. In His name we pray. Amen.